Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Colossians 1. We here at GCA identify ourselves as a sovereign grace church. It says so on our sign. It says so on our logo. It says so on our website. We are a sovereign grace church. Sovereign grace is a nickname for the theology that grew out of the Protestant Reformation. And so it is sometimes called Reformed theology. And because the Protestant Reformation came about as a result of people like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin, sometimes Reformed theology goes by the nickname Calvinism. And so here at GCA, we are not afraid to be identified with Sovereign Grace Reformed Calvinistic theology because that is the theology that most perfectly and most succinctly sums up what the Bible actually teaches about salvation. What we are not is hyper-Calvinists, except on those occasions when we have too much sugar. But for the most part, we are not hyper-Calvinists. Now let me define what hyper-Calvinism is for just a moment. Hyper-Calvinism believes that God is just going to save who he's going to save, those people who he has elected before the foundation of the world. And it doesn't matter how they live. It doesn't matter how they react. It doesn't matter if they even express any form of faith toward God. Once you're chosen, you're chosen. That's all there is to it. And in fact, genuine hyper-Calvinistic churches will only preach to the elect. They don't go out and try to evangelize the non-elect or the unsaved. They are so completely convinced of God's sovereignty in salvation that human will, human determination, human participation, even human faith is not part of the saving process. Well, this morning we're going to read Paul place a conditionality on everything that Christ has done for us. Last week, we talked quite a bit about his incomparable description of Christ, his very high Christology and how he said that Christ is sovereign, Christ does what he wants to do, and only through Christ is there any salvation. And I stopped specifically last week at the end of verse 22 because verse 23 begins with the little Greek participle, which in English would be the letters E-I. That's the whole word, just I. It's a word of conditionality. 
It is translated here in the NASB in verse 23 as if. Paul is going to say, if indeed you continue in the faith of Christ, then all the things that he has just described are true for you. Why would he say such a thing? Because we know that there's no conditionality. If there was any conditionality to salvation, we know that Christ satisfied the conditions. We know that Christ fully accomplished everything necessary for our full, complete salvation and redemption. Why, when writing to this church at Colossae, would he use the word if? Well, that's what we're going to start this morning by looking at. So to get some context, we're going to start reading from verse 13. And I'm going to try not to comment, even though it's very difficult, because I like this passage so very much. But Paul is going to describe his very high Christology and then use the word if. And then we'll talk about why that word exists. You get the game plan? Yes. Okay. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Don't you want every bit of that to be true for you? Yes. That is Christ fully accomplishing your complete redemption, the complete forgiveness of sins, and then standing before God holy, blameless, beyond reproach reproach. We want that. And then Paul says, if, and he places this condition on it, if indeed you continue in the faith, I will tell you now that some of the oldest Greek manuscripts may not have the definite article there. If indeed you continue in faith or continue in the faith, 
If it is the faith, then it's continue in Christianity. If it is continue in faith, then it is a designation that you have to be completely dependent on the finished work of Christ in order to be saved. So whether it's the faith or whether it's just faith, it is still full confidence in the finished work of Christ and no confidence in your own flesh or your own ability. And you have to continue in that faith in Jesus Christ, firmly established and steadfast in that faith, in that confidence. Why would Paul say that? And not moved away from the hope. Now, once again, I have to take the time to say the Greek word, elpis, the Greek word for hope is different than the English word for hope. The English word for hope is, I hope it happens. It might, it might not. The Greek word being translated hope, we simply don't have an English equivalent word for it. And so they went with hope because that's as close as we have in the English language. But the Greek word translated hope means a looking forward to a confident expectation of what you know is going to come. It's just not here yet, so you're looking forward to it, confidently expecting it. So Paul says, don't be moved away from the confident expectation of the good news that you've already heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Okay, so the audience he's writing to in Colossae is an audience made up of Jews and Gentiles. And to both of those audiences, Christianity, especially new covenant salvation by grace, Christianity is a brand new idea. To the Jews in Colossae, Paul argues that Christianity is the completion of Judaism. If they understood their Old Testament, if they understood what the prophets had said, if they understood the oracles of God, they would understand that Jesus Christ is the expected Messiah and therefore is the completion and fulfillment of everything that Judaism is all about. Here is the culmination of Judaism, your Messiah on the planet. That's the guarantee of your future kingdom. That is the guarantee of everything else to come that your Messiah is here. But the idea of salvation by grace through faith was so difficult for the Jews to get a hold of that we have letters in the Bible like the Galatian letter where Paul went to Galatia and preached to the Gentiles salvation by grace through faith. And then in came the Judaizers. And they said, yes, yes, the Jesus thing, yes, but also you have to be circumcised. And you have to keep some part of the law. You have to do something to make sure that that salvation through Jesus is valid for you. You've got to add your works. Or we have the book of Hebrews, which is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews and saying, don't go back. Don't go away from faith in Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the worship that is prescribed in the Old Testament by Moses. So we have to understand the part of the audience that Paul is writing to here in Colossae 
are Jews who are tempted to add their works, to add something, to do something, keep some part of the law. Naturally, they would think that. For 1,400 years, that has been the means by which they could approach God, via the law, via keeping the standards that Moses laid out. So the idea of abandoning that in favor of faith in Jesus Christ solely, only, that was an idea that was very, very hard to get a hold of. And so Paul had to really put the emphasis on all of this that Christ has done is true for you Jewish believers if you continue in that faith because they are tempted constantly to go back to return to some portion of the law to say yes it's Jesus and yes Jesus did everything but I'm going to add my works I'm going to add something you know, I'll give you an example that happened just this week. I got an email from a fellow whose simple question to me, it's somebody I've never heard from before, and his simple question to me was, what does your church think about Sabbath keeping? And I wrote back to him and explained that in Hebrews 4, it says there is a Sabbath thing for the people of God, and that is when we rest from our works, and trust in Christ's finished work. That is the satisfaction, that is the fulfillment of Sabbathing in the New Testament. And I sent that back to him, and I thought, there, that's the answer. That's how GCA deals with the question of the Sabbath. He wrote back three very quick and rather curt emails. The first one said, God commanded the Sabbath. And you're not keeping it. And while I was sitting there thinking, you poor soul, who has bewitched you to make you think that you have to add some of your works in order to satisfy God? And while I was sitting there thinking, another email popped up from him. And he said, and by the way, the Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. Worship on Sunday is heathen worship. And I thought, oh, I'm probably dealing with a Seventh-day Adventist here. So his concept, and he felt he had to correct me and instruct me about it, his concept was, yes, Jesus, but you also have to do stuff. In his case, it was you also have to keep the Sabbath, and you have to keep it on the right day, and you have to keep it on the right way, and that's the only way that you're going to accomplish satisfaction to God. So that still exists today the same way that it existed in Colossae. And the Jews of Paul's day were constantly tempted to return to Moses they were driven out of the temple. They were driven away from their businesses oftentimes. They were shunned by the community of Israel. And so they were tempted, just because it would be easier, they were tempted to just go back to how it was. And so Paul has to say, continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Stand your ground. Don't be moved. The other audience that Paul was writing to in Colossae 
were Gentiles who had never heard of Jesus Christ the Messiah, but who were busy worshiping all kinds of other gods. And they were steeped in idol worship. Paul comes along and says, all of your philosophy, all of your intellectual conceptions of how life works are all wrong. I'm going to tell you the truth now, the only truth, the established truth. Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal salvation. He is the life. He is the truth. He is the only eternity that matters. And I'm here as a minister of his to tell you the good news of salvation by grace through Christ. And they would say, well, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. But can we also add a little bit of my personal idol? Can I also add some of the worship that I'm already familiar with? So whether we're talking about Gentiles who knew nothing of the Jewish Messiah, or whether we're talking about Jews who don't understand that the Messiah is the full, complete satisfaction and redemption, the full completion of Judaism, the only thing you need to get to God and be eternally saved, whether it's Jewish confusion, whether it's Gentile confusion, there was all kinds of reasons why people would turn away from the faith in Jesus Christ and try to add something else to it. And that goes on to this very day. That's why I offered up my example from my email just this week. Because there are people everywhere who want to say, yes, Jesus, yes, Christianity, but also me. There's got to be some me in this. I got to do something. I've got to add something. I've got to add my good works. I want to stand before God and say, yes, I appreciate your son, but let me tell you what I did. Didn't I do good works in your name? Didn't I prophesy in your name? And Jesus says when people stand before him like that, he's going to respond, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And so Paul, aware that that's the way genuine Christianity is designed and how it works, says to the audience in Colossae that he's writing to, now that I have told you all about Christ and his supremacy and his finished work and that he is the only way to God, make sure that you continue standing in that. Firmly rooted, grounded in the faith. Because only people who are rooted and grounded in the conviction that Christ is all and in all. Only people who are standing unwavering, unmoved in the conviction that Christ is their full and complete salvation and redemption. Only those people can stand confidently before God because those are people who have nothing to plead for themselves. All they can say is, Christ, he's my advocate. He's my redemption. He's the one who is my attorney, who pleads my case for me. He is my redemption. He is indeed my all and in all. That's the way Paul saw Christianity. And that's why he had to say to the Colossian audience, this is all true for you if you remain in the faith, steadfast, unmoved. 
You understand the conditionality now? And you can see why Paul would say that. And let me say that same conditionality exists right now. That same conditionality exists right now. If you think it's Jesus and some heaping helping of you, I have a t-shirt at home. Actually, I have two. One, the one I really like, is made of Australian cotton, and so that'll give you some idea who gave it to me. At our very first meeting, while she was still staying over at the McIntyre's house, at our very first meeting, she yanked out a T-shirt. Because in a message, I said, I want a T-shirt that says, Jesus plus nothing. And she went and got me a T-shirt that said that. And also John Willis, who I want you to continue to pray for, who's been a great friend to GCA, who's been responsible for rebuilding our website. He is still recovering from the massive stroke that he had. But he was the first person to send me a T-shirt that said, Jesus plus nothing. Because that's my war cry, and I believe that's Paul's war cry here. In fact, I was tempted to wear one of those shirts this morning. I was tempted to show up and preach in a t-shirt this morning that says, Jesus plus nothing. Because that's where you have to stand. You have to stand rooted and grounded in the theology that says, Jesus, all Jesus, completely Jesus, and none of me. And none of my law keeping, and not my religion, and not my church attendance, and not how good I've been. Instead, it has to be Christ completely alone. One of the mottos that grew out of the Protestant Reformation is Christ alone. Among the solas that grew out of the Protestant Reformation, that one looms large, Christ alone, because he is the only full satisfaction. He is the only one who is capable of fully satisfying God the Father. And to whatever degree you think you're going to do it, to that degree you have lessened Christ and his finished work. So now follow Paul's logic. Starting in verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated, standing away from God and hostile in mind, you hated him. And that's the condition you were in when he found you. There was nothing good enough in you that would make him go, oh, yeah, I got to have him. Yeah, look how good he's doing. Instead, the way that God found you was that you were alienated and hostile in your mind, and engaged in evil deeds, proving how much you hated him, and proving how alienated from him you were, you were engaged in actions every day that can be qualified as nothing but evil. That's you. And supposedly there's going to be some part of you, hostile, alienated, evil deed you, that is good enough that God is going to say, yeah, my son and you. Yeah, my son, the holy one, the righteous one, and you. You did some good too. Well done, you. Good for you, pat on the head. I appreciate you validating my son. 
no it has to be Christ alone because there's nothing good in you this is the same Paul who wrote that there's no one who stirs himself up to seek God there's none that doeth good no not one and when Paul said it he was quoting from Isaiah who said it to begin with so the Bible all the way through Old or New Testament says there's nothing good in you there's nothing satisfactory in you there's nothing sufficient enough in you that God is going to say yes share part of the glory that I have designated for my son He's going to share it now with you because you're so good. No, you're alienated, God-hating, evil-doing. That's who you were when he found you. And yet, I love that yet. I emphasized that yet last week. And yet, despite the fact that that's who you are, he has now, right now, fully accomplished he has reconciled you to God through his fleshly body through his fully sufficient death in order so that he can now present you before God as holy and blameless and beyond reproach evil doing God hating alienated you stands before God holy blameless unreproachable and that can't be because of what you did. It is, according to Paul, because of what Christ did. Because he was willing to die on the cross to be the fully sufficient Savior, sacrifice for your sinfulness. And so you have redemption through Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And that's God's plan. It is the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness would dwell in Christ and you don't get to diminish that fullness one iota by talking about you. Do you get this? Have I driven this point home sufficiently yet? Because the Bible keeps saying it and keeps saying it and still somebody will sit down at their keyboard and type to me and say that I'm not a Sabbath-keeping Christian. So it exists to this very day, that concept, that idea that we have to add something to the finished work of Christ. Paul's theology is that Christ has fully done everything necessary for your full, complete redemption and eternal salvation. Therefore, you have to stand in that. You have to be fully convinced of that. So he has made you holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in faith firmly established and steadfast and not moving away from the confident expectation of the gospel that you've heard. And where did they hear it? From Paul and from Epaphras who learned it from Paul and then went to Colossae and preached it which is why Paul wrote this letter to them, to affirm them in everything that they had learned and everything that they had heard. This gospel, this good news of the finished work of Christ, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That word heaven, by the way, there are three heavens spoken of in the Bible. There are the heavens where the birds fly, where the clouds are. That's known as a heaven. And then there's the expanse 
where the stars and the planets and the galaxies are. That's referred to as the heavens. And then there's something called the third heaven that Paul says he went to and heard a man say things that it's not right for a human being to repeat. That third heaven is where God dwells. Here I believe he is saying, under that first heaven, under the skies, on all the land, all the property where there are people, this news is now being proclaimed. The emphasis, I think, is on both Jew and Gentile. This used to just be a Jewish exclusive thing, but now I am out a Jew, preaching it to both Jew and Gentile. In a minute, Paul is going to make reference to that and talk about that mystery of the inclusion of Gentiles into salvation by the Jewish Messiah. So that is why I believe his reference here to all creation under heaven is everything that has been created under the skies, whether Jew or Gentile, there's no exclusivity. Instead, the preachment of the gospel freely goes out to absolutely everybody. And those who God has chosen will respond. Which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Do me a favor, if you would, please, Tom. Look up Acts 2.5. That word minister right there is uh, diakonos. And so we're going to have our diakonos, Tom, who is a deacon here at GCA. We're going to have him read Acts 2.5 for us, if you would. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. Now the reason I had him read that is he said devout Jews from every nation under heaven. So that you can see that this is standard language for all peoples, all nations under the sky. And Paul is a minister, a diakonos. Let's talk about that word for just a moment. The deacons came about in the book of Acts because there was a contention between the Jews and the Hellenistic Jews and the dispensing of the goods of the church to the widows. And so they came to the elders in the church and they came and said, our widows are not being served properly. And the response from the elders of the church is, well, we shouldn't leave prayer and the preaching and the study of the word in order to go wait on tables. So you go find 70 men of good repute and put them to work doing this thing, working this out. And that was the beginning of deacons within the church body, the people who do the day-to-day -day work. The reason I point that out is that diakonos does mean to be a servant. It does mean to be a waiter because of its background. And yet Paul, who could rightly say, I am an elder in the church. I'm an elder statesman. I've seen Jesus himself. I'm the one that's assigned to come to you. Paul doesn't say that. Amazingly, he refers to himself as a minister of the gospel, a servant of the gospel, as a waiter who waits on God and Christ and preaches the gospel out of obligation and love for the God who saved him, I like the fact that he does not become braggadocious 
at this moment when he actually could. He could say, look, I taught the guy who taught you. That makes me pretty much top dog where you're concerned. But he recognizes the church belongs to Jesus Christ, and he is merely a minister of Jesus Christ to the church. And I like that assessment of himself. Verse 24 is what I tried to introduce last week and just never really got there. And in fact, Jeff called me Sunday afternoon and said, you know, you never got there. Well, now we're, we're going to get there. I emphasized last week that there is no contradiction between God's absolute sovereignty and human suffering. Paul in verse 24 says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. How can Paul say that? Because the suffering that he was enduring was because he took the message of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And it was that activity that caused the Jews to oppose him. But this is also what caused him to end up in Roman bondage. Because he was stirring up the people by saying that not only is Christ God, he is the only God, and that means Caesar is not God. And the Romans weren't going to take that lying down. They were going to shut this down no matter what it took. So he's in Roman bondage at the moment. He's taken lashes across his back, 39 lashes five times. He's been in shipwreck, stoned and left for dead outside Lystra. None of that seems like happy good times. And he says, I rejoice in it. How can he rejoice in his suffering? He says, it's suffering that I've gone through for your sake. Because I've brought you the truth, I'm suffering. But I'm rejoicing in it because I know that I'm preaching Christ, which is what I was assigned to do. And in my flesh, I do my share. I do my part on behalf of the body of Christ, which is the church. I do my part in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, now that's an odd turn of a phrase in the English language. I'm filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? If you wanted to misread that, you could say, Paul is stating here that the suffering of Christ was not fully sufficient to accomplish everything Christ set out to accomplish, and therefore more suffering had to be had, and Paul was willing to be the one to fill up that suffering. That's not what Paul is talking about. In fact, you can look through the entire New Testament, and you will never see the word affliction used as synonymous with the suffering and death of Christ. Instead, this word translated afflictions here means the trials, the difficulties that we go through here in human life on planet Earth. And so what Paul is actually saying is, I'm suffering for your sake, but I'm willing to suffer for your sake because you are the very body of Christ. You belong to Christ. You are the church of Christ, and there is affliction, there is trouble that is part of the package if you're going to be Christian. 
if you're going to stand firmly, like he just said, stand firmly in the finished work of Christ, you're going to get opposition from every corner. Not only are the God-haters going to oppose you, but much of the church world is going to oppose you. And so there is a certain amount of affliction, trouble, trials, that is what it is to be a human being on planet Earth who believes fully in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that there seems to be a filling up, a completion of the afflictions that are necessary for human life as a Christian. And he says, I'm perfectly willing to do that filling up. I'm willing to take all the afflictions that are assigned to me. I'm willing to go through the whole thing because these afflictions are afflictions because of Jesus Christ. Christ is the reason I'm being afflicted. And I'm not going to fight against it. I'm not going to argue about it. I'm not going to kick against the pricks. Jesus has already told me not to act like that. I've been to God three times to remove the thorn in my flesh. He told me that his grace was sufficient. I'm willing to go through whatever difficulty, whatever suffering is assigned to me because I understand that I'm going through it for the body of Christ, the church. And that is the reason I'm willing to suffer. So Paul laid out the theology of an absolute sovereign Lord and a fully sufficient salvation that is the result of Christ hanging on the cross, God accepting that fully sufficient sacrifice, and therefore the people he died for are holy and blameless. And we're going to suffer. This life is going to be difficult. There are going to be afflictions in this life. And Paul said, I rejoice in those afflictions because I know I'm going through it for you. I know that I'm going through it for the good of the church. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in the afflictions that come along with Christ. That's what the word Christ's afflictions is referring to. And of this church, says verse 25, of this church I was made, again, a diakonos, a servant, a waiter, according to the stewardship of God. Again, really interesting word. Oikonomia. In any household, if you had servants, a number of servants. You also had one servant, the steward of the house, who was in charge of keeping the household going. And he was in charge of all the other servants. Has anybody here ever seen Downton Abbey? Oh, yeah. Okay, I enjoyed Downton Abbey. Everybody who was a servant in Downton Abbey didn't report to the owner, the master of the house. All the servants reported to the butler. Okay, that butler would be what Paul's referring to here as the steward. The steward of the house is the go-between between the master of the house and the servants in the house. So Paul likens himself to the steward in the house of God who on behalf of the master, who is Christ, it's his church, he's the master of the house, and he is steward over the servants in the house. 
And so he is that go-between between God and God's church. And he is willing to take that position, this stewardship from God that was bestowed on me, given to me, assigned to me for your benefit. So again, Paul does not take the time to say, I'm the elder. I'm the one through whom you learned what you learned. I taught the guy who taught you. Instead, Paul uses two terms in one sentence, a diakonos, a waiter, and the oikonomia, and the steward of God. So he continues to use that language of service to the church. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God that was bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out. That's actually one word in the Greek. It took three in the English language to satisfy that one word. But it means to fill up completely the preaching of the word of God. Even more interesting, Paul's dedication, Paul's determination is to preach the word of God at all costs. Preach the word of God to the Gentiles who desperately need to hear it. Preach the word of God to the Jews who desperately need to hear it. Preach the word of God to the human beings of planet Earth who desperately need to hear it. And along with that preachment comes hatred from the world because Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. So along with the preaching comes affliction. It's part of the package. It's part of the difficulty of what it is to be completely sold out to Jesus Christ. And yet Paul says, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to take the afflictions. I'm willing to fill up, which is the same word, well, a version of the same word, that he uses when he says that he is going to fully carry out, fully fill up the preaching of the word of God. So I'm filled up with afflictions because I'm filled up with the preaching of God. Isn't that wonderful language? I know I'm being really technical this morning, but I'm doing it on purpose because sometimes, translating from Greek to English, you lose the nuance of what was written in the original letter. Here Paul is both humbling himself under the afflictions of God assigned from God that are a result of the fact that God has also made him a steward in his own house. And he's willing to take those afflictions and serve out his job as a servant, as a minister within that house, so that he can fill up the preaching of the word of God. That's his ultimate intention. The ultimate intention is that you know what the word of God is. And in order for you to know it, Paul is willing to suffer the afflictions that come with it. And he's willing to do that for the sake of the church who needs Jesus Christ. It's marvelous language. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, now he's going to tell us what that particular word of God is that he's sent to carry out. And he's going to say, I'm sent to carry out the mystery of the gospel, which is the inclusion of Gentiles into salvation by the Jewish Messiah. 
That's why I'm here with you Gentiles. That's why I'm teaching you Gentiles, because that is my assignment in the household of God. That is the mystery. Mysterion, the Greek word, means previously unrevealed truth. It was still true. It was always true. It was God's truth. It was established truth. We just didn't know it until God revealed it. And Paul said, I'm now in the enterprise of revealing this mystery which has been hidden in past ages and generations. It was still true. It was still coming. God just hadn't revealed it yet. And Paul says, my job is to reveal that. My job is to explain to you this mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now, at the present time, been manifested to his saints. It's been revealed to his hagios, to his chosen ones, to his holy ones, to the ones that he has separated to himself, separated out of the world. Those are the people he is now revealing this mystery to. And boy, you Gentiles in this room better be really glad that God decided to do that. Amen. And tell you about your salvation. Through the Jewish Messiah. Your full, complete, utter redemption if you stand fast and firm in the fact that he did it all and you didn't do any of it. A wonderful mystery that the Gentiles get to partake in that past ages and generations didn't get. They didn't understand it. Even though, by the way, as we've been reading through the book of Isaiah, just as we've read through so many of the Old Testament prophets and discovered that the prophets all say that God is going to be the redeemer of the Gentile nations, of the goyim, that he's going to bring in the non-Jews eventually, all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, early in the book of Genesis. We're talking Genesis 12 here. God tells Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Not just Jewish. And so that reality of Gentile inclusion was proclaimed from Genesis on. And yet it was hidden. Yet nobody seemed to get it. Nobody seemed to know it. And so when Paul comes along and starts preaching to Gentiles... He gets all kinds of pushback from the Jews who don't want their promised Messiah taken to the Gentiles. He gets all kinds of pressure from the Gentiles who don't want people being converted to a Jewish Messiah. He's getting all kinds of affliction coming his way because he is revealing this mystery that Gentile saints are actually being brought to God Verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory. Do you know anything? Well, I should stop there. Do you know anything? <laughs> Do you know anything about the glory of God? Isn't it remarkable that we do? We certainly don't understand it in its fullness. We don't understand it in its complete scope. But every once in a while, we get a glimpse of the glory of God. If you look at Jesus Christ, you've seen a glimpse of the glory of God. 
Why do you know anything about the glory of God? It's because it's been revealed to you. It's been revealed to you through the preachment of the word of God. And through the word of God, that is how, whether reading it, and that's what I mean when I say preachment, I don't just mean people standing up and talking about it. Whether you're reading it, you're reading Paul's preaching about it. Or somebody declaring it to you. At some point you came toe to toe with the very word of God. And through that he has revealed some glimpse of his glory to you. God willed to make known the riches of his glory. That was God's plan. That was God's idea. You didn't wake up one morning and go, I'm going to go find God. As Isaiah said, as Paul repeats, there's no man who ever stirred himself up to go seek God. And so God chose people, his saints, the ones that he separated, his hagios. And to those people, he revealed his own glory. And part of revealing his glory is to reveal this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, oh good, Paul's going to now tell us what that mystery is, which is Christ in you. Wow is right. Not just Christ is an available Savior if you want to choose him. God purposefully, by his own glory and his own eternal plan, chose you to be his hagios, his saints. Don't miss that word. Hagios, holy, fully separated. He chose you to be that, and the way that he accomplished it was to put Christ in you via his Holy Spirit taking up residence in you. All of that, from beginning to end, from alpha to omega, all of that is God's doing and not one whit anything you did. That's glory. That's, right. That's glorious. That's about as good as it gets. Anybody here hate the world as much as I do? I just thought I'd ask. I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. I'm about fed up with this world. Not about. I'm fed up with this world. The world gets increasingly stupid every day. And there's really no place, those of you who know my personal story, know that between what's happening in the world and what's happening between America and Australia and what's happening with the sickness I just went through and Blah, 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 all this stuff. There's absolutely nothing left in life that brings me any joy till I read that. When I read that, when I get to say that, when I get to stand up in the pulpit and proclaim that the mystery to the Gentiles is this hope of glory because Christ is in you, well, then it just doesn't get any better than that. In this completely corrupt depraved, dark, stinky world. That's right, I went with stinky. (laughs) In this world, that's the only thing I cling to. That's the only thing that gives me any hope. And I hope that's the case for you and that you're not part of the stinky world. The mystery has been hidden for past ages and generations. But it has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you 
the confident expectation of glory. Whew. I'm looking forward to that whole glory thing, aren't you? Yes. Go back and read Romans 8, 28, 29. Whom God foreknew, those he did predestinate. The ones that he predestinated, those are the ones that he called. And the ones he called, he justified. And the ones he justified, he glorified. That glory that is promised to us in Christianity that Paul has described here to even us God-hating Gentiles, that glorified state in the mind of God is already a done deal. He already sees us in Christ, Christ in us, therefore our future is fully accomplished in the mind of God because of the cross of Christ and because of what he has fully accomplished. Therefore, we don't have fear of this world. We don't have fear of death. We're just looking forward to going home. I'm going to read it one more time. Just because I like it and I can. Starting in verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him. And we proclaim him. Yes. There's nothing in you we can proclaim. That's why Paul doesn't say, and I proclaim what you got to do to go get him to save you. No, Paul's good news that brings about confident expectation of glory is him, him alone, him only, Christ fully, completely. That's why you have to stand firmly in that. Don't be moved. Don't be shaken. Take your stand on Jesus Christ and don't be swayed by this world and the afflictions of this world and the difficulties of this world. Stand firm because we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man as complete in Christ. Not in your good works plus Christ. Oh, you get it by now. Am I beating a dead horse? It's good news. It's good news. We proclaim him. And we admonish every man. And we teach every man with all wisdom, by the way, in my introduction to the book of Colossians, 
I told you that one of the prevailing philosophies there in Colossae was Gnosticism. Gnosticism was purported by some philosophers to be the only way to achieve actual true wisdom. Here Paul says, I preach Christ with wisdom because he is all wisdom. All the genuine wisdom, all the God-given wisdom, all the eternal wisdom is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. He is the answer to Gnosticism, not some other competing philosophy. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man as complete in Christ. Complete in Christ, not complete in Christ and some other, I'm horse beating again. <laughs> but notice where Paul puts the emphasis. Christ, Christ alone, Christ only, Christ fully, Christ is all. Christ is the satisfaction of God. Any affliction we have, it's because of Christ. It's all about Christ. We proclaim him. I keep reading, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also, for this purpose of proclaiming Christ among the Gentiles and admonishing every man to trust Christ and only Christ, for this purpose also I labor striving according to his power which mightily works in me even the fact that Paul perseveres even the fact that Paul could be put in prison and he would still write letters that we're reading to this very day as Paul continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ even the power it took to do that he said it's not my power it's Christ's power he's the one that empowers me to even do what I'm doing right now. If you're listening to this and you're understanding it, that's Christ giving you the power to do that. Amen. If you got up this morning, knew your own name, threw on some clothes and went to church, that's Christ empowering you to do that. If you've ever gotten a glimpse of his glory, if you understand anything in the Bible, if the things I just said to you make sense, Christ empowered that. It's all Christ. It's only Christ. It's completely Christ. So stand firm in that. Don't be swayed from that because there's going to be plenty of people in this world who are going to try to dissuade you. There's going to be plenty of afflictions in this world that are going to make you want to ask questions like, where's God in all this? Paul's answer is, Stand firm. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.